0: Welcome to the IoT Podcast Show. I'm your host, Tom White. Today, I am joined by John Burton. John is the co-founder and CEO of Ursa Leo. John, welcome to the IoT Podcast Show. Thank you so much for coming on and joining us here today.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: You're very welcome. John, can we just start by kicking off so our listeners can understand... What is Ursa Leo Digital Twin and how did that name come about?
1: Uh, so uh, an Ursa Leo Digital Twin is a way of looking at real-time data, typically in an industrial IoT setting. Um, my co-founder, Angie Stitches from Apple, when we got together, we like, you know, consumer electronics got revolutionized. The iPhone came along, the iPad, the way we interact with with electronics and technology on the consumer side completely past the industrial side by we're still using all the same interfaces we used 20-25 years ago uh, so our digital twins are a way of trying to revolutionize that that industrial IoT interface uh, the name Ursa Leo actually came up me, me and Andrew were born a day apart so I'm August 6th she's August 7th so we're both Leos um, and the Ursa bit came from an early business trip to Russia where we were taken out to dinner And on the menu was bear, as in bear dumplings, as in big, large, hairy animal pears. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) So so I had to try try it. And then we thought, well, what the hell, we'll put the name Leo and the name for bear URSA together and make it into a company name, which was available
0: and reasonably short. (laughs) That's a fantastic story. I'm sure you've said it many times. It's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. how, How people have actually come up with the names of their businesses. But yeah, eating bear, what was that like? I can't imagine it's something you've had before going to Russia.
1: I hadn't had it before. Angie was very worried about where they got the bears from, and I think she <laughs> thought there was some nice bear farm somewhere. I was like, no, I'm, I think they just go out in the woods and shoot them, Angie. <laughs> that's, uh, it
0: tastes a bit like boar. They, they, okay. they make, them dump, yeah, make them into dumplings. They're kind of rich. Right, yeah, so kind of a, a rich kind of gamey type meat, I would mm-hmm. imagine. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yep. oh, fantastic. Well, yeah, thank you for, share, thank you for sharing that. Uh, that's, uh, that's that's amazing. Um, so, that, so that we can get into to the thick of it, uh, what – why in your opinion and obviously founding this business why do we need digital twins not just for manufacturing but say smart cities and, and built environments as well john so, so again i think it really goes back to the way we consume data as human beings um
1: you know we're, we're very visual um if data is presented to us in in visual interesting ways we can make a lot more sense of it we can absorb it we can act on it a lot better uh, and our feeling is a Digital Twin is a great way of doing that. It's a great way of showing you, you know, take a city example. Let's zoom out to so your 10,000 feet above the city and you, you see some high-level data. As you zoom in, you see more and more data. Uh, it's just a much better way of portraying the sort of things you want to know about a smart city than, than, than a b- bunch of abstract dashboards, which is typically how it's presented today.
0: Yeah, yeah, fantastic. And why now, of all particular times, So
1: we use uh, Unity Gaming Engine as as the way to actually render these digital twins, so that if you've seen them, they're they're pretty photorealistic. They look like a high-end computer game. Um, Really, that gaming technology, I think, is just coming of age in a non-gaming setting now. Uh, There's been a lot of work on the CAD side, so 3D models of things are are very common these days in all sorts of uh, applications. The combination of going from CAD to gaming sort of environments has now become very automated. So what would have been incredibly difficult and expensive two years ago is now pretty straightforward and pretty inexpensive.
0: Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So I've heard of Unity quite a lot. So that's synonymous with the games industry, isn't it? With uh, is it rendering three D vector type stuff? Am I right in saying so? Yeah. I mean, there's lots of
1: terminology around it, but basically, there's two main gaming engines: uh, Unity and Unreal. Unreal tends to be yeah. the sort of high end, you know, Fortnite online massive. Massive shooter games. Um, Unity's used a lot more in the mobile environment, yeah. And they've just done a great job on giving you something that's very easy to make something look nice, good lighting, good textures. Run on anything. Run on an iPhone. Run on a VR headset. Run on an AR headset. Um, so yeah, very ubiquitous. It's, it's all over the place. There's thousands of programmers familiar with it. Yeah. Um, it's inexpensive. You know, it's a great way to, to present this data to render yeah. the, the 3D models we use.
0: Yeah, I don't know if you've ever heard of Blender, but the Blender Foundation, mm-hmm. but yeah, so a good friend of mine from TomTom Tom introduced me to Tom, uh, the founder of Blender, um, mm-hmm. and I think that's that's completely open source, isn't it, I think, Blender, compared to Unreal, and, and, and I, I'm saying this with a slightly uh, questionable <laughs> tone, because it's not my field of expertise 100%, so I'm kind of Digging around, trying to understand it—is that—is that right? But Blender's, yeah, Blender's another
1: 3D tool. Um, I saw a nice demo the other day where somebody took in data from Google Maps, okay, or you know, Google Google Earth, and they combined it with elevation data, and they actually made a 3D landscape in Blender really quickly, half an hour or something. So, wow, it's another—it's another tool. It's—it's—it um, plugs into all of all these things. Sort of work with each other mostly. I mean, they're, they're not always 100% compatible, but they're getting there. So on the CAD side, you've got guys like Autodesk. Uh, you've got open source tools. You've got um, on the gaming side, you've got Unity, Unreal, and, and it's getting yeah. pretty easy to go from one to the other.
0: Okay, ah, oh, fantastic. And so, how complex is this, John? How you know in, in actually building a digital twin? You know, what are we looking at here? Um, so the models themselves are fairly straightforward as long as we have CAD. If we don't
1: have CAD, it gets a bit more complex. You have to do you know scans, LiDAR scans, or something. Um, we're then combining it with real-time sensor data so there's a small amount of complexity there where we hook up the back ends so our back end is you know connected to an AWS or an Azure or a Siemens or whatever it is yeah um, and then there's usually a bit more complexity around hooking in things like asset databases um, so these these projects tend to be you know they tend to be hundreds of thousands of dollars not five thousand dollars so you know mid mid-size
0: industrial and up uh, the
1: guys who tend to make advantage to take advantage of it
0: Yeah, fantastic. Um, And in terms of digital twins, um, do you think it's going to be a big part of manufacturing and the technological future that we see? Um, Because there's a few there's a few instances of digital twins. So sorry, just to add to that. So everyone knows about the port of Rotterdam, for instance, certainly here in in, in Europe as, as one of the prime examples of digital twin over here. But moving forward, do you think this is going to become more commonplace? Yeah, I think it will. I, th- I think there's a massive problem in
1: industrial IoT in general, which is companies spend very large sums of money implementing systems, and I don't think the majority of those systems get u- utilized to their full, of, full degree. And a big part of that is the user interface and the ease of use. Um, I read, I think Cisco put out some statistics that 74% of IoT pro- industrial IoT projects don't deliver an ROI or expected ROI. And a big part of that is you're, you're trying to bring in complete process chain, you know, you're trying to get people to use a completely new IT way of doing things. Um, you've got to make that really, really simple. I mean, if you remember the first time you picked up a smartphone or an iPhone, I keep going back to that example, but when I, I've never read a manual on how to use an iPhone. I don't think anybody does. You know, you pick it up, it's obvious, yeah. you, you use it. That, that's what we're trying to achieve through digital twin technology is, you know, somebody in an industrial session it's just, they just use it. They don't have to be trained. They don't have to, you know, be forced into doing it. It, it becomes something that's just obvious and at their fingertips.
0: Um, and if we can achieve that, then I, I think they will have a very big place to play. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the hope and dream, isn't it? I mean, you look at programming languages, you know, it's been widely spoken about for the last decade or so that eventually these high-level languages, people will just be able to type, you know, their native language and program and get a computer to turn stuff out without necessarily needing to know about compilers and 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 runtime errors etc and uh you know hopefully if we can get to that point it would be it would be amazing for everyone i suppose wouldn't it yeah that that particular goal has been floating around as long as i've been involved in technology
1: so at least 30 years so i don't know how much closer we are to it than, than we ever were but um that there's a lot that can be done with a good user interface and, and i think one of the issues what we saw when we got into this you know we're ex-apple and gaming guys effectively um you know, most of the people doing industrial IoT stuff are are kind of hardware guys like Siemens, who you know then then develop developed a software product. Um, we're not, you know, we just think it, it could be done better. We just think the aesthetic of, of how to make an interface to these
0: things can be much improved. So what's what's the the sort of litmus test for this? Because I suppose it's the intuitive UI, right? I often think, you know, can my can my parents use it? You know, my dad's seventy five years old can it can he pick up this device can he look at this GUI and actually navigate it without necessarily needing that instruction book which as you just mentioned when using an iPhone is that is is that the sort of test that you might do pretty much is the test we're doing yeah so we we're starting to to roll
1: this out now we've got you know we've got users in the oil and gas industry we've got users in the construction industry these are not natural technologists you know they they don't get up in the morning and start programming python um, and if we can give you know maintenance people out in the oil and gas field, if we can give them something that they they are comfortable using and, and will use then then that's a great that's a great baseline. I think if we can achieve that then we've, we've achieved a lot of what we wanted to do and I think we, I think we are doing that
0: yeah fantastic you know it sounds it sounds sounds amazing um, you've collaborated with an Israeli business um is it Shiratech? Is Shiratech. that right? Am I pronouncing yeah. that? Yep. Shiratech. Could you talk a little bit about that? How that came about, and and what you're doing with those guys?
1: Yeah. So we, we have a collaboration with a few different people. We we are pretty much focused on visualizations. You know, how do you how do you consume data? How do you see data? How do you use data? Um, there's other pieces of IoT systems, obviously, and Shiratech specifically do um, a nice retrofit box. So. Right. You know, most industrial equipment out there is, you know, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five years old. It doesn't have sensors. It doesn't have connectivity. If you want to bring it into an industrial IoT uh, environment, then you're going to need something like a ShiroTech box to, you know, give you some of those sensor readings that, that allow you to do stuff with with them. Uh, the reason it came about, actually, a good friend of mine knew ShiroTech They uh, they they were they were basically a European company. They got involved with Arrow and Siemens. Um, Arrow okay. I think funded them and a guy I know here in the Bay Area knew them very well and introduced me.
0: Uh, okay fantastic yeah I know some of the guys at Arrow quite well um, mm-hmm. done a bit of work with them in the, in, in the Bay as well. Um, Aidan Mitchell people like that. Um, so yeah I, sent... I'm not that familiar but I, I know uh, I know people who know people there definitely. Yeah yeah fantastic And and, and in terms of you know, what you're producing, the involvement with Shira Tech, obviously with that additional add on that box sounds great, obviously requirement, otherwise you're not going to get the information. How is this going to continue to shape the industrial landscape for for IoT? And again, for the wider view of our listeners, you may not know it from a first hand point of view, in terms of planning, predicting and preventing performance issues. So, I, I mean, I, I apologize
1: if I, but, but I've got a little bit of a sort of uh, analogy I use when we get into where where industrial IoT is today and where I think it's going. So, okay. if you go, go back in time to when I was first in, in, in you know, had my first job, mainframe computers were the, the thing everyone used. You know, I remember going into a company, my first company was Philips, and, and they had a great big IBM mainframe system. Back in the time, you know, you got everything from IBM. You bought the printers from IBM, the storage from IBM, the software from IBM, a huge maintenance contract with IBM. And I kind of feel that's where IoT, industrial IoT, is for a big part today. Um, you can get everything you need from Siemens. It just is may not be the most flexible and best way of doing things, but it's a one one-stop shop. I, 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 um, our partnership with guys like ShiroTech and Aliantia and a few other people allows somebody now to build an industrial IoT system that's going to be much cheaper, much more flexible. I think it's going to perform better. Uh, but you're going to need multiple vendors, and it's, it's kind of what happened in the computer industry. You went away from buying everything from IBM, and now you started buying Dell servers and HP printers and Microsoft software or you know, Linux so you, you started bolting together all these different pieces, uh, and I think we all agree that you know, the prices dropped dramatically, systems became much more flexible. I think some of the same things happening in industrial IoT. I, th- I think this idea of a huge, homogenous industrial guy coming in and giving you everything you need, um, as compelling as that can be from a single, you know, single point of contact, you can build the same thing out of component pieces now for 10% of the cost and you know, get, a be- get a more flexible,
0: uh, better solution. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. yeah, and 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 in and in terms of your business, how you started it, etc. What were the main challenges would you say that you've had in in really getting Ursalia off the ground, and, and things that perhaps you didn't envision when you started out the company? So startups are always tough. I mean, I've done this is my fourth. Um, you know, it doesn't matter how many
1: times you do them. They they're... should be easy yeah, now. Yeah, then right? It gets, it gets easier. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, I mean, we're in the Bay Area. We're doing kind of industrial stuff, so get, getting getting investors was a little tricky at the beginning because we weren't building a new social media platform. We were doing something that was much more, you know, that, that plays much more in the Midwest in America than it does in on the on the coast. Um, so just sort of convincing people that you know this was something that was was going to there is a viable business here that we could do it. Um, that was probably the biggest challenge. I mean you know the team we I, luckily I, I knew angie really well she just got out of apple she'd been at apple for 10 years so i knew you know she was her capabilities are going to be very very strong uh then we were able to build a really really good team again gaming guys for the for the front end stuff and some cloud guys for the back end stuff um you know there, there is there is a it, it takes a while to convince anybody to do something new so going into industrial companies and saying hey there's a better way to consume your data. It's not the easiest thing, but it, it's picking up pretty good momentum now.
0: Yeah. That's a really interesting point you just touched on there, actually, John. I think, uh, you know, being around the Bay Area, we've, we've got a presence uh, down in Santa Clara, actually. And one of one of the main things that we see is it's not social media. It's not an app. It's not something cool and sexy and, you know, is videos and overlays and bits and pieces was that a challenge in getting that investment on early early days and, and with the likes of Angie and her pedigree from Apple and, and of course, yours, right? You know, fourth startup. Did this counterweigh that in, 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 from investment circles? I'm curious on that. So, obviously, the, the, the way most startups get funded is you, you, know, you fund it yourself,
1: which me and Angie did for, for a good long period of time. Um, then you typically bring in friends and family and people who know you uh, that was fairly easy because I did have a pretty good track record. So you know, the first million bucks or so was, was really came from from my network and from Angie's network. Um, getting institutional money is always a challenge, and I'd love to say that you know that VCs make investments based on very analytical you know decisions. They actually don't. They typically make investments based on hearsay and people making recommendations and emotion. So there's always a slight challenge of, uh, you know, just establishing that VC network and getting, the, the, getting the, that, that sort of first tranche of institutional money. So we actually did that with a couple of angel groups here in the Bay uh-huh. initially, and we're just about to hopefully close around um, with a full-blown VC, which will be our first, first sort of, you know, uh, well, I guess we've had institutional money, this would be our first big institutional check. But yeah, it's, it's, it's not, everyone tells you raising money is easy, they're lying. You know, Unless you get real lucky and you happen to hit blockchain just as blockchain became the big thing, or you happen to hit uh, artificial intelligence just as that became the big thing, then every VC is desperate to make an investment in that space. Um, but that—that that, you have to catch yeah. that wave. Yeah. Otherwise, it's a grind. You've got to show traction. You've got to show you know what you're doing. You've got to show customers want to buy it. Yeah. So
0: it's not a—it's non-simple. Yeah. Even, it's, even in Bay Area. <laughs> no, I, I can imagine. And people buy into this hype, You know, this emotion. And I guess that's what separates us as, as humans, right? You know, it's like going to an auction. You could say, right, I've got this limit. And then you're there and the blood starts pumping. And before you know it, you've gone over your level, which is in the same way that some of these VCs might be investing in businesses because it's the talk of the town, right? Um, and, and if
1: you think of their job, I mean, they, you know, they see, they, they probably get at least a thousand applications a month, or, you know, a decent-sized VC firm. You know, they probably meet with 50 people a month and they probably make one investment a month. Uh-huh. So, you know, they're, they're having to absorb huge amounts of information and, and decide, make decisions and filter it. You know, they, they make a decision on whether they're going to move forward with somebody within 10 to 15 minutes maximum, probably actually within yeah. two minutes, mm-hmm. you know. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky, you know, they don't have time to massively analyze things. They have to make decisions real quick, otherwise they just wouldn't yeah. get through the volume of deals
0: yeah yeah you know, completely and it, and it stands to reason doesn't it you know you make you you make a judgment although we shouldn't and everyone tells us that we shouldn't within the first 10 seconds of seeing someone Yep. you know and if someone's someone's coming up and asking for money it's you know how they are presented, how they articulate themselves you know do they have energy are they really passionate about what they're doing so that's that's curious to hear yeah um Ursa Tech, what can we see from you in the future, John? What's going to happen? Um, you know, where are you right now? You're 20 people as well. Is that right? Are 20 people around full time? Uh, I think we're about 17 at the moment. Okay, right. Yeah,
1: but we're hiring real fast, so the number, the number goes up. I've got three or four wrecks out yeah. at the moment. Um, okay. I think the, the next big thing is augmented reality. I think for us that um, as you get into applications around remote maintenance where you're, you're trying to support someone who's doing maintenance, I'm an expert, you're 400 miles away, you know, working on my piece of machinery, and I'm guiding you. Uh, I think augmented reality, we're in the process of, of, you know, implementing that right now. That's going to be, and I think augmented reality is really coming of age at the moment, uh, with things like the Microsoft HoloLens coming out. Mm. Um, It's, you know, a lot of that stuff, again, the frameworks are there, it's all... You know, it's all sort of coming of age. And I think really, really interesting things can be done with that. Um, So definitely augmented reality, you know, integration with lots more. Uh, You know, we're already integrated with Amazon. We're already integrated with Azure. We're going to have to do integrations with SAP, integrations with Oracle for the maintenance side of things. Um, So lots of work to be done there. But I I, I think uh, for the the cool side of things, augmented reality is going to be the coolest thing we show off in the next three months.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Well, John, look, you know, thank you so much for coming on to the show and telling us about the business. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here and and listening in a little bit about the investment piece as well. That's really curious for me to understand. (laughs) Everyone has a slightly different view and a slightly different take on it, but I really appreciate your honest... Uh, you know, kind of warts and all view on that. You kind of didn't beat around the bush and said it how it is. And that's refreshing sometimes where, um, where can all the guys find you on, on social medias? I assume you're on online on LinkedIn and various other places.
1: Yeah. So my personal um, account on LinkedIn is where I spend all my time. Social media. I don't really use anything else. So John, John Burton, uh, you can just do a quick search, find me on LinkedIn. Yeah. Uh, The company obviously has a, has a LinkedIn Twitter presence, um, Ursa-Leo or IoT, I think are the handles. You can find us on there, but it, you know, should be able to find us pretty quickly. And then, uh, if you want to test drive models, just come to our website and, and there's a form. You can say, "Hey, I'd like to try out a digital twin," and we're very happy to, to send people out to access codes so they can come in, download a model, fly through a you know fly through a factory or fly through an oil and gas facility.
0: Yeah, ah, oh, fantastic. Oh, that's great. John, thank you for coming on to the show. And, guys, if you'd like to sign up to our newsletter, the link should be in the comments below. Do come and tell us what your thoughts are on Industry 4.0 and the whole digital twin movement as we've listened here today from John. I'll be curious.